I want to shamelessly admit that I don't have the foggiest idea what the word recalibrating means, so I shan't use it. <laughs> How many of you have read a little red book entitled Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola and George Barner? Raise your hand real high, would you? Okay. All right. About half of you. I want you to be very clear about this. This is the first time that I'm going to make this statement in public. I hope it's being recorded. George Barna wrote every word of that book. I put my name on it so that it would sell. And it's doing very well among baseball fans right now. I am truly honored to be here. Uh, I have no idea why I was invited, but uh, I do want you to know that it is an honor for me to be sitting in the same room as Len, Alan, Mary-Kate, and Dan. Notice that I did not say Lance. I was asked to talk about my book, Reimagining Church. If you did read Pagan Christianity and survived it, this is the constructive sequel. Pagan Christianity deconstructs and reimagining builds up and constructs. The two books go together, although Reimagining Church is a standalone book on its own as well. It took me 21 years to write that book, and that's because it was important to me to test the principles on the anvil of experience. Consequently, you will not find armchair philosophy in that book. What is it about? Uh, I think Brother Len Sweet summed it up beautifully when he said, it is a theology of church as organism rather than organization. Forgive the personal illustration, but I am an observing biologist. For the last 21 years, I've had the privilege of watching, living in, and even planting the organic expression of the church of Jesus Christ. Everything I know about Christ and the church and everything I have written about has been by watching and experiencing. In the year 1988... I left the institutional church. I gave it up for Lent. <laughs> and I was thrown into what I would call a spontaneous burst of body life. And brothers and sisters, I beheld Camelot. I saw Zion. For one bright and shining moment, I saw her, the bride of Jesus Christ the most beautiful woman in the world, free of condemnation, free of religious duty, free of guilt, free of the stench of human-made ritual. And it wrecked me. If you have never seen her, the bride of Christ, operating and functioning according to her native instincts, then quite frankly, you have not lived as a Christian because she is your natural habitat. You were born to live within her walls, as it were. I'm speaking of the bride of Christ, 
as she can be expressed and as she was meant to be expressed. And so consequently, what I've done in this book is I have written really a, a theology in a popular sense of the word that's built on my experience. A few simple points. Uh, one, most denominations, most parachurch organizations, most mainstream churches teach that the church is a living organism and not an institutional organization. But in my experience and observation, that is simply a doctrine. It is pious rhetoric. And so consequently, the question I raise is, if the church of Jesus Christ really is a living organism, then what does she look like in her organic expression? And saints, I'm not talking about house church. Let me go on record. I wouldn't give you two cents for most house churches on the planet today. I am monumentally unimpressed with the so-called house church movement. That is not what I'm talking about. As far as I'm concerned, meeting in a home doesn't make you a church any more than sitting in a donut shop makes you a police officer. No offense to the police officers in the room. Uh, it, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. I'm speaking of the organic expression of the church. When God's people are following their spiritual instincts and the DNA of the church of Jesus Christ is operating. And so consequently, uh, I seek to unfold that in this book. Secondly, organic church life is not native to this planet. It comes from another realm. It began long before Pentecost. It began long before Galilee. It began long before the Hebrew faith. It began before Abraham. It began before creation. Organic church life is nothing more, nothing less than the fellowship of the Godhead. And it began before time. And sisters and brothers... I'm convinced that if you do not understand that, you will never understand the ecclesia of God. The headwaters of the Christian life, the headwaters of the church, the headwaters of church planting, and the headwaters of God's mission all find their source in the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before creation. And that's a summary statement of what the book is about and what it unfolds. Now, um, there's something else the book does, and I think it's a unique feature of the book. I, as far as I know, I've never seen anything else uh, in print that does this, and, and there may be. I, I don't know. But it blends together, and I'm going to speak theologically now, so Bible scholars in here will understand what I'm talking about, especially the theologian. Uh, it blends together a high church view of the mystery of the Trinity and the importance of Christian community with a low church view of church without clergy and without institutionalization. And I maintain that if you take the high church view of the centrality of the Trinity and the critical importance of Christian community and you follow it to its practical conclusion you will end up with something that looks very different from what most of us have seen 
on this planet that goes by church. You will end up with the organic expression of the body of Christ. And that's one of the things I try to lay out in the book. Uh, Another feature of it is at the very end there's an appendix where I not only take dead aim at a lot of the spurious teaching around covering, which is really smothering, and authoritarianism, and clericalism, and hierarchical leadership structures, but I try to answer every conceivable objection to the points made in the book. And so that was very important to me that 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 be done. Finally, the most important chapter in this book, as far as I'm concerned, is a chapter entitled, Reimagining the Eternal Purpose. And sisters and brothers, I believe that the missing ingredient of the house church movement, the missing ingredient of the evangelical movement, the missing ingredient of the emerging church movement, and dare I say it, the missing ingredient of the missional movement is the eternal purpose of God. And yet, that is the grand narrative of the entire Bible. Beyond creation and beyond redemption, but deep within the beating heart of God, there is his eternal purpose, and it is his ultimate passion. It is his central thought. It is his magnificent obsession. It's his dream, if you please. And the interesting thing about the eternal purpose of God, and Paul uncorks it in Ephesians and Colossians, is that not only do few Christians even know what it is, but if you're a Christian worker in this room, God has called you to his work, then in my personal judgment, listen to me, you must be obsessed with, possessed by, saturated with, intoxicated by God's eternal purpose in Christ because it is the very thing that provoked God to create. And I'm going to make a statement here that I may get hung for. I'm going to say it anyway. I think that much of evangelicalism and much of the emerging church movement and much of the missional movement views the Church of Jesus Christ through the lens of D.L. Moody. Now, D.L. Moody was a great evangelist, and I will not take that away from him. Uh, I don't think any of us in this room can fill the shoes of D.L. Moody. He won over 100 million people to the Lord, uh, preached at least to that many, and and won millions of people to Christ. But D.L. Moody had a defective ecclesiology. He did not see nor understand God's eternal purpose. When D.L. Moody opened up the scripture, he saw two things and two things only. Number one, you're not saved. You need to get saved. Number two, you're saved. You need to get other people saved. And upon those two precepts hangeth all the law and the prophets. My dear brothers and sisters, God did not create in order to save human beings. The ghost of D.L. Moody is in this room right now teaching us how to think. That mindset that the church is a voluntary association for the saved, that mindset that the church 
is a soul-winning station and the primary purpose of the church is to save souls, that mindset that says that God's ultimate intention is to save the lost is in the bloodstream of every Christian on this planet. It's in our drinking water. It's in the marrow of our bones. And yet, that is not God's eternal purpose. That's not his grand mission. Consider this, would you? And there are many other things I can point to, but I want to take you back to Genesis 1 and 2 very quickly. God creates human beings. This is before the fall. There is no sin. God created human beings not in need of salvation. He didn't create Adam and Eve to save them. They they didn't need to be saved, right? There was something else in his heart for them to do. It stands outside the reaches of redemption. And if you look at Genesis 1 and 2 very carefully, you will find over 30 themes in living color in those two chapters. Remember, this is before the fall. The fascinating thing is that you can trace all 30 plus themes all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament like a golden thread, and all of them reappear. All of them find their climax in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. All 30 themes reappear there. What are those themes all about? They're all about God's high, grand, glorious purpose. And let me tell you something. That purpose is not centered on the needs of human beings. If you take our gospel... I don't care what tradition you're from. If you take our gospel, in most cases, and you peel back the layers, what you will find is a gospel that is centered on the meeting of human needs, whether they be spiritual or physical. And yet, we have a God who's burning out here with an eternal purpose that is by him, through him, and to him. And it is not about us. And I'll tell you this, the greatest day in my life after I found Jesus Christ was when the Lord opened my eyes to see that he had an eternal purpose that went beyond my own needs or the needs of human beings. That's a byproduct. It's not the prime product. There is something in God that is for God. And at the center of that eternal purpose is the supremacy, the preeminence, and the centrality of his son, And the church, as we, most of us, have never seen it, heard about it, or experienced it. Now, I'm going to cheat as I close. I didn't plan on doing this, so forgive me. But just a few days ago, uh, my publisher sent me a copy of my next book, which will release in March. And it is called, From Eternity to Here. Now, if that title sounds familiar to you, a fellow by the name of James Jones in the 1950s stole it from me and made a famous movie picture out of it. And all he did was he reversed two words. But I have forgiven him for that. This is called From Eternity to Here, Rediscovering the Ageless Purpose of God. What this is, it is the unfolding drama of God's eternal purpose and grand mission. 
out of everything I have ever written, and probably I'm about 98.9% convinced of this, out of everything I will write, this is the most important book that I will ever pen. It releases March 1st. If you're interested at all in anything I have said, then I encourage you to read this, and I would love to discuss it with you. It is an unfolding of God's ultimate eternal purpose. Now, on that high note, I'm going to invite you to pelt me with your questions. I don't know how it works, if it's from the audience or from the panel. But I want to, I want to make a request. I would really appreciate it if you would frame your questions and give them to me on the level of the practical and the experiential. Uh, we are all, well, maybe we're not all this way, but the majority of us are Westerners. We're sitting in a Western seminary. Most of us have been through a Western school. We can't think, but we think Aristotle. We are products of Aristotle. We think in terms of theories, abstracts, philosophies, theologies, etc., etc., etc. And in my uh, humble but accurate opinion, <laughs> if, if we stay on that level today, very little will change. Therefore, I would like you to ask me questions that are practical and experiential. Uh, I don't have any theories to give you. We Christians are very good at escaping into theories. I don't have all the answers, but I can give you my experience. And so, having said that, I shall sit down. Thank you so much for your patience. You can now harangue me with your questions. Okay, we're going to... Once again, we'll... We'll hold your questions until the end of the day. Just write them down. Uh, Frank, thanks for holding back like you promised that you would. And uh, do you have any slides or anything? Uh, no pictures or anything? Okay. Uh, <laughs> did uh, Frank give you guys anything to uh, deal with here? <laughs> no thoughts, Lynn. <laughs> it's pretty flat, wasn't it? Pretty, pretty dull. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, I, um, some of this, uh, Frank and I, uh, we got to talk last night, so some of this uh, we've talked about a little bit, but I'm in full agreement with your, your saying, like, the, the fall and pre-fall. You know, that's why even churches, well, in our church, we start out with worshiping first, because we're to first be in God's, understand we're in God's presence all the time, and worshiping and enjoying it and all that, but we're not, we're in post-fall time, <clears throat> And, like, you know, your story is someone evangelistically, and I know that word's bad, that's why I don't use it too much, that word, but um, made effort, specific effort for you, you know, like, and then you responded, or for me, or so thank God that somebody did make the intentional evangelistic effort with the takes time and energy. You know, so the balance of that, because then when I'm listening, it's almost like you're down, and I know you're not, but you're downplaying that we should not be aggressive and thinking about that. And I know because Jesus' first words to his disciples were, <clears throat> come follow me. And he didn't say, come follow me so you can enjoy each other and do that. Come follow me so that I, I will make you, and I will make you fishers of men or people, TNIV, which I use. Um, but then, you know, the, the, his last words, go make disciples. His last words in Acts 1.8, I'm sending the Spirit so that you will be my witnesses. You know what I mean? So, like, you see that. His first words, his last words was being aggressive. It didn't say, like, so 
I, I don't know if it made sense with that question, but in responding no, to not perfect yeah. sense. Um, for some reason, I don't feel like this is working. Is this working? Yeah, yeah it's working. It is? Okay. Two things. One, the impulse to bring a lost person to Jesus Christ is correct, but it is not complete. And we have made salvation everything in most of what goes under the flag of evangelicalism. It's in our mindset. Number two, I think it is, it is dangerous, and Jesus Christ gets shortchanged when we make the winning of souls everything and we focus everything on that. Let me give you an example. To ask the question, what is God's eternal purpose, that question is as big as the ocean, but you can slice it a number of different ways. I'm going to give you one picture. A person who comes into this earth is a dead stone. God creates stones, so it's a stone, but it's dead. Someone who is a Christian brings the message of Jesus Christ to them, and now oil is poured on that stone. And now it becomes a living stone. And in the mindset of most Christians, we have done our job. Amen. We've got a living stone. Now let's send that living stone out into the world to make other living stones. Picture this. Multitudes of living stones. We rejoice. Thank God that they're no longer dead stones. But God has an intention that goes way beyond that. He wants all of those living stones in every community, in every locality, to be built together. To form a dwelling where he can lay his head. That's for him. And brother... I, I do not subscribe to having meetings so that we can feel good. Uh, I think that is hedonistic at worst. The meetings of the Church of Jesus Christ are to express the glory, the riches, and the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ to shame God's enemy. Now, I'm quoting out of Ephesians 3. That the manifold wisdom of God may be made known through the church to principalities and powers in other realms. Now, most of us, and I know this was true for me, I never heard any preacher talk about that, let alone understand it. But all of this is for him. All of this is by him. All of this is through him. And so my point is, is that the winning of souls is not an end. It is the beginning. It is not the final mission of the church, it's not even the center. And I'll tell you something else. Most evangelism today is built on and motivated by guilt, religious duty, and condemnation. If you don't do this, you are not fulfilling your obligation. God's not happy. I, I hear from Christians everywhere I go, some of them weeping because they didn't win anybody to the Lord over the last six months, and they've been hammered into thinking by preachers that God's not happy with them. Let me tell you something. You give God's people a revelation of Jesus Christ, and I'm speaking to all of you who are servants of the Lord, who are serving the Lord's work. You give them a groundbreaking revelation of Jesus Christ, 
that will bowl them over and show them how to know him together. Do you know what? You will not have to tell them to love one another. They'll do it organically, instinctively. They will fall in love with one another. And you know what? You won't have to tell them to go out and witness or be a witness. It will happen instinctively because it's in the DNA. When someone is euphoric about their Lord, it just seeps out. And uh, that's the short answer to your question. (laughs) But I've always wanted to ask you this. um, And I want to combine something that Dan said uh, with you. Because this apostolic age that you know so much about and write so movingly about, do you think it was the Christians of the apostolic age were any less creepy than we are today? I used to know the answer to that question. You know where I'm going with that? That, that we have this, this notion that this, the, this apostolic age had it all together and is some kind of golden age. I read the, the New Testament. No, These are creepy Christians, man. The difference is those uneducated, ex-heathen, most of them were, 95% illiteracy rate, immorality, raised to the 30th power. You talk about a, a scary look. Look at some of the people in the first century, the way that what they did with their bodies. Yeah. You're, you're right. But here's the thing. Some wild-eyed fanatic named Paul of Tarsus would come into a town, bring some of these people together, and bring them to Jesus Christ, make them disciples, show them how to follow the Lord. And in three to four months... He would get out of there, not erect a clergy, not even appoint elders. That came later. He'd come back a year later, two years later. They are still meeting together. Do they have problems? Yes. But they are still meeting under his headship. And let me tell you something. I think we all should ask a question. What on earth did he preach to those people in three months to cause them, in the face of persecution even, from their surrounding neighbors, what did he preach? And I have to say that what he preached is very different than what we're preaching. preaching. And I think it it gets down to this matter of his eternal purpose. Ephesians, someday when you don't have anything else to do, read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and ask yourself this question. Do Christians talk like this? Do they have the same experience? Because those believers did. They had that with all their problems. So I'm not talking about a perfect church. There, there is no such thing. In fact, if you meet organically, you will have tenfold more problems than you'll ever see in the institutional church. But that's God's genius. That's his genius of transforming us. There's something in the center of body life. It's called a cross. And it's big when we get together outside of institutionalism. Institutionalism, I believe, protects us from one another. But that's another story. The portion of the meeting for difficult questions is over. I'm only taking simple questions now. So, yeah, you said um, placed in your book that you had been in communities that were you called them drop dead glorious, and yes. some that were horrible and unmentionable. I was referring to the meetings. Yes, to the meetings. That's yes. what I meant. And what I wondered, though, is besides sort of the intense uh, focus on the eternal purpose, that um, what, what were some other elements to that between these two, between the disparity between one and the other? The, the eternal purpose um, is, you know, it's, it's hard to just sort of like uh, get to. 
besides mm -hmm. believing it, but living at that kind of intensity level. Mm -hmm. And I think for some people, seeing some practical things that sort of get them there help absolutely. imagine it. So that's really the, the, yeah, the seed of my question. So I wonder if you could yeah. unpack that a little bit. And I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. Okay. In, in the first century, we had certain individuals who were itinerant. Paul was one of them. Timothy was another. Peter was another. Their job, their task was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They baptized people. It was always corporate, virtually always corporate. And they brought them into a shared life. And I believe that they gave them practical handles on how to know the Lord together through the Spirit. Because Christ is now in the Spirit. And they practically showed them these things. And then they left them on their own to the headship of Christ. And they discovered, they discovered by their spiritual instincts what meetings are. I, uh, I've been to Chile, for example, and I saw a beautiful expression of the Church of Jesus Christ that was very organic. It had the same features that organic churches have in the United States. Shared life community, being in love with Jesus Christ, pursuing the Lord together during the week, reaching out to their communities in a very natural, organic way. Yet, it was a Chilean expression. And what I have found in terms of the actual meetings of the church, you know, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul says to the Corinthians, when you come together, every one of you has something to bring to that meeting. The early Christian gatherings were not meetings where you came with your bucket to get filled. They were meetings where you came to share the living Christ with your brothers and sisters for the sake of the glory of God and to shame principalities and powers. But if God's people don't prepare for a meeting, those meetings are not going to look very good. And this is, this is why the clergy looks real attractive in the order of worship. And in my personal opinion, I think we should take the Sunday morning order of worship out behind the barn and shoot it. And because there's something, oh, praise the Lord, thanks. We got two people clapping on that, great. But I, but I think that there is a better way. Uh, there is a higher way for those who wish to explore it. If God's people prepare together during the week, and I, very practically, we get up in the morning, 6 a.m., in pairs, and we get together to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come into that meeting, and it is an explosion of life. And the saints are edified, and unbelievers have come into those meetings not understanding much about Christianity. And at the end of those meetings, I've watched this so many times, I've lost count. They will stand up in that meeting and say, I don't know what I saw. I don't understand it, but I want this. This is real. And Paul said that would happen in 1 Corinthians 14. If an unbeliever is among you and sees you all speaking Jesus Christ, prophesying, he will fall down on his face and say, God is among you. That's a glorious meeting. Now, I won't talk about the horrible meetings because they're beyond mention. Let's uh, give Frank a thanks, first of all. And uh, before we take our break, uh, I did fail to mention that uh, the views expressed by the certain members of the panel are not necessarily, well, you know, Reflect fill in the George blank. Fox. Exactly. George Fox, Shea Pine, and uh, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> By the way,